As we enter our second week in the Minor Prophets, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Joel. How about that? We're taking 12 weeks to look at each of the Minor Prophets, and we're doing them in chronological order. That's why we're not doing them in the order they appear in your Bible, starting with Obadiah, and then Joel would be the next one. Charles Dickens introduces us to probably, well, it can be argued, one of the timeless characters that has ever been written. That is Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge is a man, as you know, that is incapable of joy. Scrooge is rich, but he lives alone in squalor. He takes pleasure in nothing and is indifferent to human suffering. Dickens wrote what we would call in Christian vernacular a total reprobate. Yet, what he wanted to show was the effect of what true repentance, what it looks like in a life. That was what Dickens was trying to show. The power of true repentance. And by the end of the story, we see that he is radically transformed. He's not transformed because he all of a sudden comes to an epiphany on his own, though, is it? The story takes us through his journey of that one night where he is visited by three ghosts, right? And these ghosts give him insight into his character. They show him how he came to be who he was in the effects of his sin on other people. In effect, the ghosts were showing Scrooge his sin. And like I said, by the end of the story, Ebenezer comes to this understanding and repents. We have that great repents. He has that great uh, uh, scene where he comes and he truly feels sorry for his sins. How does he get to that place? How is he totally transformed? Well, that's the main theme of Joel. He gets there because he experiences true, radical repentance. True, radical repentance. Just as with Scrooge, repentance just doesn't spontaneously occur in our own lives, does it? Left to our own devices... We would never repent. We would go on living our unique version of Ebenezer Scrooge. We would continue along in life. But what Dickens and the Gospel of Joel show us is there is a need for repentance. There is a need for repentance. And that's our first point. There is a need for repentance. Joel opens up with two crippling disasters. He, he tells the people about two crippling disasters, a swarm of locusts and a drought. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, starting verse 2, sorry. Hear this, you elders. 
Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Here is this devastating locust swarm that has come and Joel is is telling is is describing this for them and how devastating it is and not only that but there's a second crippling disaster that happens you can pick that up down in verse 10 Joel goes on and says the fields are ruined the ground is dried up the grain is destroyed The new wine is dried up and oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. See, most times we don't see our need for repentance until something happens, until something happens in our life, until something happens that triggers the need, until we come to a critical point in our life, until we see that we are in need, we will not repent Joel was sent to the the southern nation of Judah about 800 years before Christ to explain what was happening to them, to tell them what was going on, to explain that these disasters, this, this locust swarm and this drought, was not just bad luck. It wasn't climate change or global warming. It wasn't a change in weathered patterns but the result of their sin. These crippling disasters were a direct result of their unfaithfulness. These were sent as warning signs from God to the nation of Judah, warning them that they were being unfaithful to the covenant that they had made with God. I take time out right now to bring us back and I ask you to turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 28 because you, you have to understand Deuteronomy 28 if you're going to understand any of the prophets. If you want to know what the prophets are doing, you have to understand Deuteronomy 28. You have to understand that there was a special covenant created between God and the nation of Israel. A special covenant that has never happened before or since. He takes them out of the Exodus, takes them to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments. There he makes the covenant with them. They go to the Promised Land, if you remember. This is the Pentateuch in a nutshell. And they're scared, and they're unfaithful, and they don't trust God that they can take the promised land. And so they're cast into the wilderness for 40 years as a consequence of their unfaithfulness until that generation has died out. And then Moses brings them back 40 years later to the edge of the promised land and he preaches a sermon to them. 
And that sermon is what we call Deuteronomy. He preaches Deuteronomy to them. And in, verse, and in chapter 27, and you can glance back there if you like, you see that he is restating the covenant. He's telling the people, you are in a faithful covenant with God. He promises to be faithful to you, and you have promised to be faithful to him. And you can see that in uh, you know, all the people saying amen to the Levites as they're talking about the consequences of their unfaithfulness. And in Deuteronomy 28, God explains to them the consequences if they are faithful. Okay, he says, let's look, at, look at the first couple verses of 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set high above the na- you high above the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. And then he goes on for 14 verses to talk about, here's what you can expect. If you're being faithful, here's what you can expect. You can expect health. You can expect prosperity. You can expect protection from your enemies. You can expect to hold on to the promised land. But then God says, I want to give you some warning signs so that you know when you're being unfaithful. And you can see that starting in verse 15 of chapter 28. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he goes on for the ne- till the end of the chapter to describe the kinds of things that will happen to them as a nation if they are unfaithful. And what is very interesting, if you look down at verse 23, says, the skies over your head will be bronze and the ground beneath you like iron. Just describing a drought. One warning sign of your unfaithfulness, Israel, is that there'll be no rain. And interestingly, if you go down to uh, verse 42, you see there, swarms of locusts will take all your trees and crops of the land. Now, returning to Joel, Joel was sent by Yahweh to tell the nation, Judah, you're being unfaithful. Look at what's happening. Locusts have come. Drought has happened. Joel has been sent to God's people to say, wake up and smell the coffee. Don't you understand what's going on? Don't you get it? You're sinning. You're in sin. You need to repent. That God does that in our lives too, doesn't he? He gives us those wake up and smell the coffee moments. I see some heads bobbing here. My head certainly bobbed this week because I was thinking back over my life how God has used circumstances in my life to help me to wake up and smell the coffee. I need to repent. I'm in sin. He will always make you aware of your sin. Always. He will always show you your need to repent. Always. Because Yahweh is a good God who loves and cares for you more than you... You you don't even know how much he loves and cares for you. 
And he knows how much sin damages and destroys you. So he gives us our wake up, the co- wake up and smell the coffee moments, doesn't he? But I want to be exceedingly clear here. This is really important that you hear me. How he wakes us up, how he warns us, how he draws us to repentance is not exactly like he does with the nation Israel. There is no one-to-one correlation. Not every Hurricane Katrina is a judgment from God. Not every 9-11 is a wake-up-and-smell-the-coffee from God. Not every drought means that there's unfaithfulness. With Israel, it was. With every other nation, no. It's just not that simplistic. And it's not that simplistic in our own lives either. We like to make it that reductionistic, don't we? But it's not that easy. Not every personal economic downturn in your life is a judgment from God. Not every lost job is a wake up and smell the coffee of your own sin. Not every womb closed or ill health is because of some sin. Can God use those circumstances to bring you to repentance? Absolutely. But here's the $10,000 question. Does God still afflict people with difficulties in order to draw them to a place of humility and repentance? That's the question, right? That's what I want to know. And I'm pretty much guessing that's what you want to know too. The answer is sometimes. Sometimes it is. I know you've heard this quote from me before, but I just think it's so theologically rich. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the probably the 20th century's most important preacher in my book, He wrote this, and listen carefully. He said, God, who has chosen you for holiness, will make you holy. And if the preaching of the word does not do so, he has other means and methods. He may strike you down with an illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he has chosen you to be holy. I hope you you understand the two things that he's saying there. Yes, God does use physical means in our life. Yeah, he does. Yes, a lost job, a lost portfolio, personal difficulty could be a warning from God that you were in some sin. Because... And here's the goodness of God that we just sang about. Because he's more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. But, more often than not, he uses normal means. Did you hear that, what Martin Lloyd-Jones said? He uses normal means. If the preaching of the word does not get your attention, that's the normal means. That's what God uses 
100% of the time in your life. He's given us his word. He's given us preached word to wake us up from our sin, to bring us to repentance doorstep. You know, I'll hide the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word should wake you up. Another normal means, and I'll just mention these quickly, is each other. If the word doesn't work, many times he'll use a brother or sister in your life. Matthew 18, 15 makes that exceedingly clear. If your brother is in sin, go to him and show him your sin, his sin. You know, the answer to Cain's kind of mocking question to God, am I my brother's keeper after he kills Abel? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. And most of all, he uses himself, doesn't he? He's given us the gift of the Spirit in our own lives that he will prick our consciences and, and, and disturb our minds and hearts. You can see that we live in the age of, of Joel 28 and 29, 2, 28 and 29, don't we? says there afterwards I'll pour my spirit on all my people your sons and daughters will prophesy the old men will dream dreams and your young women will see visions even on my servants both men and women I will pour out my spirit in those days we're living in the post pentecost fulfillment of that prophecy you if you have given your life to Christ and you have truly repented which we'll get to in a moment you have the spirit of God inside you and he will necessarily wake you up when you are in sin. Those are the ways that Yahweh shows our need for repentance. Those are the ways that God tells us to wake up and smell the coffee. You're in sin. You're being unfaithful. These are the means that he uses. These are the ways that God leads us to the doorstep of repentance. And that's what Joel is doing to the nation Judah. He's bringing them to the You wake up and smell the coffee. You're being unfaithful. You've left God. And then he got, goes on to show them not only their need for repentance, but he goes on to show them how to repent. What does real repentance look like? Okay, if the theme of Joel is true repentance, what does true repentance look like? Joel tells us. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. After describing the warnings, Joel goes on and says, Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of, of God. Declare a holy fast. Call the sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like, like destruction from the Almighty. Look at chapter 2, verses 15 and following. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, 
Gather the people, consecrate the people, bring together the elders, gather the children, those who nurse at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Here we see Old Testament images of of sorrow, don't we? Weeping, mourning, wailing, wearing sackcloth. They actually wore like a burlap to remind them of how to be uncomfortable in their sin. All symbols of sorrow. What God is calling his people to do there and what God calls his people to do still is to show sorrow over your sin. Show sorrow. Part of repentance means being sorry for your sin. You simply can't have true repentance without sorrow. You can't. But here's the rub. The kind of sorrow that you feel and display is all important here. The kind of sorrow. You can do something, say you're sorry, without your heart being engaged. You can do a lot of things without your heart being engaged, can't you? In Isaiah 29, God says, you profess me with your lips, but what? Your heart is far from me. The kind of sorrow you have is all important. And it's the same with sorrow. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul is saying there's, there's two types of sorrow you can have, guys. You can have a worldly type of sorrow. One that is insincere, that is, that is mere lip service to God. Sorrow that does not, that kind of sorrow God does not acknowledge at all. might look like true sorrow, but it's not at the heart level. Worldly sorrow is often produced when a person realizes the consequence of their actions and wishes to avoid those consequences. That's the definition of worldly sorrow. Is it, does it just have to do with the consequences? Lord, I'll be faithful and you'll take away the locusts in the drought. If that is your focus in sorrow, God says, you, you declare me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's not, that's not true sorrow. You're upset about the consequences. Not what you've done, not the sin. Worldly sorrow just wants circumstances to be relieved. Worldly sorrow says things like, I'm sorry you took it that way. Says things like, I'm sorry I got caught. Says things like, I'm sorry I caused you so much damage. Do you hear it? 
it's not sorry about the sin. There's no sorrow, no grieving over the sin. It's about the circumstances. They're sorry. Worldly sorrow can weep and wail and mourn and wear sackcloth and there's no internal change. There's no real sorrow in the heart. I guess the best example of this is Judas in the New Testament. Judas Iscariot. He displayed the greatest display of sorrow anybody can do, didn't he? He committed suicide. That's the greatest display. But the Bible makes it exceedingly clear that that Judas is not going to be in heaven. He did not display godly sorrow. You know you're experiencing godly sorrow when you're focused on the sin and not the circumstances. You're led into repentance, confessing your sin and repenting of it. And there's change. There's change that occurs. And the only way real change happens is through a changed heart heart. And that is what Joel is telling his people. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, don't do the outside, do the inside. Godly sorrow over your sin leads to repentance, which leads to change. There must be heart change. John Murray, in his book, Redemption, Applied, or Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is on the back table there, I recommend that you look at it, but don't take it. But I put it out there so that you get to know good theologians. John Murray. He wrote this, Repentance consists essentially in change of heart, mind, and will. The change principally respects four things. It is a change of mind respecting God, respecting ourselves, respecting sin, and respecting righteousness. Apart from regeneration, our thought of God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness is radically perverted. Regeneration changes our hearts and minds. It radically renews them. Hence, there is a radical change in our thinking and our feeling and our behavior. Old things have passed away, new things have come. But, he concludes, the test of repentance is our resoluteness Respecting our sin. The test of true repentance is our resoluteness respecting our sins. Is there a resoluteness? Is there a war that you're waging against your sin, people of God? 
Do you weep and mourn over your own self-righteousness? How you judge others? How you put others down? How you elevate yourself? Do you wear sackcloth, sackcloth over your bitter, angry, slanderous tongue? How you hurt people and make people feel less than? How you gossip and cut down? Do you wail over the lusts of your flesh? The lust for power and prestige and position, money, the lusts of ill-gotten pleasure. How resolute are you? How at war? True repentance leads to a change that comes from within. And it means, at the very least, at the very least, that you are resolute about the sin in your life. But sometimes that doesn't happen, does it? God gives you warnings, warnings, word pricks your mind, brother, sister comes to you, you hear the word preached and it brings things to mind, and it Nothing happens. There's no change. Even though the, te- the terrible warnings are coming to you, you still continue in that same sin. Some people are like the nation Judah, in that they can endure long periods of the consequences of their sin. You know, they have this, the wrong type of perseverance. Perseverance in, this, in their sinful circumstances. So Yahweh gives Judah a third reason to repent. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old nor even will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, flames blaze. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Go down to verse 10. Before them, the earth shakes. The skies tremble. The earth, moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. And look who is at the head of this army. The Lord thunders at the head of this army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? If you skip to verse 31, you see another description of that wedged right in the the Pentecost 
prophecy. Verse 31, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You want a third reason to repent? Final judgment is coming. That's what he's telling his people. Okay, maybe maybe you can withstand the drought and the locusts for, for a period of time, but time will come to an end, people. The day of the Lord is coming. If you remember in the, in the Scrooge book, if you remember, the first two ghosts did not cause Scrooge to repent, did they? It was only until you had this third ghost that as a child I was terrified of. It was this death figure with no face and bony hands, robed, didn't speak. And what did, it, what did this ghost do? It took him and showed him the results of his sin. You keep going like this? This is what's going to happen. And by the way, there's your grave. And that is the answer to the question, why should I repent at all? Why repent? The day of the Lord is coming. That's what Joel is saying to Judah. And that's what he is saying to us. You don't have forever to repent. Yahweh is doing is letting Judah see that if things don't change, disaster, final disaster will happen. Make no mistake, people, there will be a day when sin will be judged. There will be a day when you stand before God. And it'll be terrifying. That's not a popular thought today. It's not something that people go, oh, please preach about this. That doesn't make it any less true. One of the early books written about post-death experiences that people come back, one of the first books that was written by, was written by a woman by the name of Betty Eddy. And she died on the operating table getting a hysterectomy for five hours. And then she came back and she wrote a book called Embraced by the Light. Maybe some of you have heard of this book. And in it, she alleges that after she died, she went to heaven. And she said that while she was in heaven, the idea of hell and judgment were nowhere to be found. She wrote that Jesus never wanted to do or say anything that would offend me. That's from the pit. That is a popular view of Jesus. That's a popular view of the future. But it's simply not true. In Joel 1.15 it says, Alas, Alas, that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come with destruction from the Almighty. The day of judgment is coming, people. Spoken of throughout Scripture here as as in the form of a locust swarm and drought. 
Jesus talked about it as as a time of separating sheep and goats. He talked about it as being so terrible that he says, "Oh, alas, for for mourn for those who are are young mothers with with uh, with babies that are suckling at their breast." Paul wrote it about it in terms of a court where you will stand before the judge. John wrote a whole book about it, the book of Revelation. Don't you realize the third ghost is coming? The final judgment is real. As the great 19th century statesman Daniel Webster said, and I hope we can all begin to say this same thing, my greatest thought is of my accountability to my maker. Why repent? Judgment is coming. Look with me at verse 12 and 13 again in chapter 2. Because here, God gives a second and perhaps more compelling reason to repent, people. Even now, declares the Lord, in some of your versions, and I love this even better, it says, yet even now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Perhaps a more compelling reason for you and for me to seek true repentance is that he waits and he's willing to forgive. You know, our culture is inundated with these comic book movies. As a matter of fact, Carrie and I just watched one last night, Batman versus Superman. Eh. <laughs> but in those, I think the villains have a great theology, but a bad character. If you think about the villains in those movies, they always, if they get to a point where they... They think humanity is like a virus. Remember uh, Mr. Anderson from The Matrix? Humanity is a virus that has to be wiped out. Or Age of Ultron, maybe one of the newer ones, where Ultron finally gets to the point where he becomes self-actualized, and he goes, oh, I'm perfect, and everybody else, every human being is not, so they have to be destroyed. They have to be blotted out. I want to point out to you, those villains actually have a good theology. Sin should be blotted out. (laughs) Humanity deserves that. But they have a bad character. And what Joel is showing us here is that God does not. He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow in sending calamity. He is quick to forgive. Most, and he says, yet even now, I will forgive you. God has the right reaction to sin, 
but he also has the right character. God wants to forgive. He's always saying, yet even now. There's still room for repentance. If you return to me with all your heart, there's always a yet even now with God. Always. And he shows his yet even now character by sending Christ, doesn't he? He could have blotted out, but he sent Christ. Christ is the yet even now. He was born under the law so that you and I don't have to live under the law. He, he, he lived a perfect life. And he died a death that you and I deserve. That's the, the supervillain blotting out. We deserve that, but Christ took that. If we accept him, if we accept that payment, you and I will live in eternity with him. Joel 2.32 tells us, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're sitting here today and you are not sure that you've truly repented, this is your opportunity. You're at the doorstep of true repentance. And Jesus is your yet even now. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word and spirit. I trust you will apply it to our lives perfectly. It's in your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.